we're now going to go to a, another book of the Bible. We're going to start the book of Ephesians. Now, what I want to do here, uh, and you'll see uh, what I'm going to do, I want to, I want to do this entire session uh, in Ephesians using PowerPoint. I have the entire book of Ephesians on PowerPoint, and I've made a lot of notes about the book as we go through it. So it's going to look a little different. In other words, I'm not going to be necessarily able to see all of you. Uh, there aren't that many of you, but I can't see all of you. So if you have a question, just, just you don't have to raise your hand, right? Just blurt out your question, because I may not be able to see you and see, you know, you, where your picture is or where your space is lighting up as I can see the square lights up. So just blurt out your question. But I think you're going to... Um, I think you're going to enjoy this. I've done a lot of work on Ephesians. It's a book that I think is one of the most important of all of Paul's books. So we're going to be, it follows exactly the note packet that Joel sent out and that you should be familiar with. So let's get started. If you look at the introductory page on your notes, which would be page one, this is pretty much following the bullets there that that I put in the introduction. So if you want to jot notes down, you can. If not, just uh, let's, let me talk a little bit. There is no question uh, that Paul wrote this. It's indisputably the Apostle Paul. It was written in either late AD 61 or early AD 62. It is one of what are called the prison epistles. This is Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. I think he was in prison twice. I'll say more about that much, much later on. But anyway, the other three books he writes when he's in prison uh, are the books, and I put them there in the parenthesis, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those four books are called normally the prison epistles. They were written during Paul's first imprisonment from uh, A.D. 61 to about A.D. 62, he was in prison for about two years in Rome. And that's when we studied the book of Acts uh, a while back. We left the book of Acts, chapter 28. Paul was in prison. That's the imprisonment in which he writes these letters. So Ephesians probably is the first of those four letters that was written, again, around 61, early 62. What were the others in order? Um, it's probably in the order that I have it here in the parenthesis, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. There is always a little bit of dispute about the chronological order, but that's probably, that's probably the order. Thank you. Now, it's important to ask of any book in the Bible, because usually we can discern that. What, what's the purpose of the book? In other words, why did Paul write the book? Why, it's a letter. Well, as far as we can discern, there are no, there's no false teaching. If you look at the book of Colossians, which we studied a while back, Colossians it was generated by false teaching, heretics in the church. Uh, Philippians was about a joyful thank you note to those dear, dear people in Philippi. That's not the case in Ephesians. But the theme of the book is, is unity in diversity. He's going to talk about that right away in chapter 1. He's going to talk about the church, and the model of the church is the Trinity. That in the Trinity, there's the unity of essence of God and the diversity of the three persons. So the overall purpose of the book is to, to promote love for one another, grounded in the love of God in Christ. 
And this love provides the basis for the unity of the church. You see, that was one of the real challenges in the early church period. Remember, I mean, AD 61, you're less than 30 years after Jesus went back to the Father. You're less than 30 years from the founding of the church. And one of the greatest challenges was unity because you had Jew and Gentile, which never got along. Now they're in the church if the Jews have converted to Christianity. Plus, you have all these other pagan beliefs that they are now abandoning, plus all the tradition, plus all the cultural and ethnic differences, because the Roman Empire was so diverse. And all of that comes into the church. So that's what Paul's doing in Ephesians. He is going to talk about the importance of unity and the diversity in that unity. There's diversity. It's, in, it's true in all of your churches, wherever you go to church. There's tremendous diversity in your church. People come from all kinds of backgrounds. They come to Christ. It's, some come out of a very, very difficult situation. Some come out of a not very difficult, but they all come to Christ. But that diversity extends to ethnic diversity, to racial diversity, to gender diversity. And so what's the basis of holding everything together? What's the glue that holds everything together? It's agape love. And so the book of Ephesians, that's why I love the book. The first three chapters are heavily doctrinal. The last three chapters, four, five, and six, are eminently practical, which leads us to a conclusion. Sound doctrine produces godly living. And you're going to see that in Ephesians as we work our way through that. So then the fourth point, it's in your notes and now on the slide, is the uniqueness of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians was a circular letter. And what, what I mean by that, it was intended to circulate, uh, circulate among the churches of Asia. And I'll show you a map in a minute, but the, you know, Ephesus was the front door to the Roman province of Asia. And that's why Paul, in the third missionary journey, spent three years in Ephesus to disciple a, a, a very significant group of leaders in Ephesus, to make that church a very strong, solidified church, because as Ephesus goes, the rest of the Roman province of Asia will go. And so Paul intended this letter to circulate widely among all the churches of the Roman province of Asia. And so that's why that theme becomes such an important theme for all of the churches of Asia, because that was a very diverse Roman province. Then, in, again, following what's in your notes, some of the major themes of the letter. I already mentioned this, but the letter is very easy to outline. It's very easy to structure. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are heavy doctrinal chapters. You're going to see that right away in chapter 1. Then the, the last three chapters eminently practical, the duties and responsibilities ethically that the believer has to one another, to God, and, and, and so on. It, it's a tremendously practical uh, epistle. I, I love the book of Ephesians for that reason. And so what I've done here with just a series of bullets, these are some of the kind of key themes that come up throughout the book. Paul's favorite word for describing the Christian life is walk. And the Greek word is peripateo, which is the normal walk of life. And so he describes the Christian life as a walk. 
a walk with God. It's normal. It's not abnormal. It's not extraordinary. It's the ordinary norm for the Christian, your walk with God. And so you're going to see that in chapters 4, 5, and 6. He keeps using that word over and over and over again. Walk, 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 walk. Secondly, the theme of love is prominent in both sections. You're going to see that right away in chapter 1. Paul is going to talk about the love of God the Father. He's going to talk about the love of God the Son, the beloved one of the Father. He's going to speak specifically about the Spirit's uh, Holy Spirit who indwells us being the architect of love in our lives. And then in the practical section, he's going to stress that over and over and over again. The Holy Spirit is very prominent. This has been nicknamed the Holy Spirit epistle of Paul because he stresses the Holy Spirit so frequently through the book. And you're going to see it right away in chapter 1, but you're going to see it throughout uh, the rest of the way. And in chapters 5, chapter 5, verse 18, he's going to command, be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We've got to talk about what that means, what, what's the implication of that. Now, this has been nicknamed the Spirit, Holy Spirit epistle, but it's also been nicknamed the Trinitarian epistle, because of all the letters of Paul, as a matter of fact, of almost all of the books of the New Testament, this, a little epistle, stresses the Trinity. And again, you're going to see that right away in chapter 1. That's why it's such a marvelous chapter. But he really, he really helps us to understand that God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. That's my definition of the Trinity. You're going to hear it a thousand times in the next couple of months. But that, that's an important part of sound doctrine. You've got to understand the nature of God. He is a monotheistic one God, consisting of three persons, and we'll talk about that as we get into it. And then finally, in terms of the uniqueness, similar to 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, in Ephesians, the church of Jesus is referred to as the body of Christ. Now, that's a metaphor, it's a figure of speech, but he is the head, we are the body. And so where Jesus is the head of the church, we are his arms, we are his legs, we are his eyes, we are his ears because we are representing him throughout planet Earth, Christians, wherever they are. And he is, the, he is the head. He's giving the directions, so to speak. He's the boss. But that's another major theme, especially in chapter 4. You're going to see this important understanding. What's the church? It's an organic, living body of Jesus over which he is the head. And it's to thrive and pulsate with his primary characteristic of love. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And so it's, it's a wonderful book. It's one of my favorite epistles of Paul. And you're going to get the sense of that as we get into it here um, uh, in the next several months. All right. Now, as I have a, another a bunch of introductory things I want to say that are just more of like a map. I want you to see what the city looked like, introduce you to some things about the city that he's going to be referring to as we study it. Any questions about this introductory material? The love that um, we have uh, doesn't end, begin and end at the church door. Does it just among the church? It's to, we're to, to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're to love God and love others. So it's, it's the glue that holds the church together, but then, then becomes one of the key elements of the gospel. Thank you.
All right, now let me take about five minutes and just I have about uh, 20 slides here. I just want to introduce you to this important city of Ephesus. This map that you're looking at now is from really the third missionary journey of Paul, but he was centered in Ephesus for almost three years. And I put a big black arrow so you don't mistake where it is. It was on the coast, it was a port city. And you can look at that pink area that has at the top in capitals, Asia. Now, when you and I say Asia, we're thinking of India and China. That's not how Rome thought of Asia. Asia was the name of the eastern, excuse me, western half of what today you would call Turkey. But it was the Roman province of Asia. And if you just look at all those different cities, you can recognize some of them. Laodicea, Colossae, Hierapolis, Philadelphia, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum. Some of those churches you might remember are in the two uh, the seven churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation. Asia was a key Roman province, but from Paul's perspective, Asia was ripe for the gospel. And his first missionary journey was in Galatia and part of Asia. His second missionary journey, he spent time in Asia. And then his third missionary journey, he spent almost three years in Ephesus. That was the base of operations. He would go out from Ephesus and do a bunch of things, sent Titus and Timothy and Silas all over the place. But this was his logic, it seems to me. If I can win Ephesus and I can disciple enough elders, spiritual leaders for the church, and we will, we will find out there, will be, there were multiple churches in Ephesus. That was the key to winning Asia. It was the gateway to Asia because of its location. It was a marvelous, magnificent, huge city. And so it, it reflects to me the strategy that Paul had. I'm going to plant key churches, disciple key leaders, and move on. And so you can see that in how he deals with Ephesus. And in writing this letter, to the city of Ephesus, excuse me, to the church of Ephesus in the city of Ephesus. He's looking at it as a key of reaching all of the Roman province of Asia. This just gives you a little bit of a, it's more of a telescope view of where Ephesus was. Here is a, um, an overview of the, of the city of Ephesus at the time of Paul, and I want to show you some photographs now. This is one of my favorites. This is a reconstruction of what the city of Ephesus looked like. And if you, you can quickly see something, you can see just a little bit uh, off to the left, the great theater. This was one of the largest theaters in the Roman Empire, the, the theater of Ephesus at Ephesus. And you can see all of the colonnades of the walkways and what really were roads. And you can see to the left on this map, which would be, of course, to the west, is where the harbor was. And it was, it was a city, it was a city that was steeped in the occult and steeped in idolatry. When you go back and read in Acts chapter uh, 18 and into 19, one of the key things Paul did in Ephesus was deal with the idolatry there. And it was a city that was absolutely drenched drenched in the occult and drenched in idolatry. And one of the key, by the way, this is what the ruins of Ephesus look like today. And you can see if you look at this, which is the model of what it looked like with all the buildings, here are the ruins. And you can see that great theater. It's number seven on this 
this map here or this photo here. But I mean, we, we really, this is one of the wonderful things about it, is so much archeological digs that's been done. We have a real good idea of what the city looked like. Jim, where did people live? It looks like a lot of commercial buildings. It, it was, yes. They, they, some did, and we're on, we're on this, both this and this model is only showing you the city proper. It would by, by look, it would be sort of like looking at the business district of Omaha or, you know, the financial district of London or something like that. So all around it, and that, that's why this is, this doesn't show that all around it what were the agricultural settlements most of the people lived outside the city and of course all the workers and and the agriculture and so on outside the city so this model and this uh, uh photo of the ruins does not do justice to where the common ordinary person lived that's not reflected in either one of these it would be like trying to look at a model of jerusalem at the time of jesus those models show you the major buildings, but don't show you where most of the residences were. I know that's not real helpful, but that's the only way to answer your question. Here are some of the ruins of Ephesus, and I'm not going to spend any time on it, but here's the great library of Celsus, the great library. This is one of the greatest libraries of the ancient world. Here's a larger uh, picture of the ruins. Again, we know a great deal about what Ephesus looked like. I'm going to, I'm going to show you this later because this is going to come up in the book, but one of the greatest aspects of the city of Ephesus was this incredible temple to Diana. Diana is what the uh, Romans called her. Artemis is what the Greeks call her. It was a female. This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was an absolutely stunning temple. And Paul deals with this in, in the book of Acts in the third, third missionary journey. You might remember a number of uh, months ago, years ago, we studied that. But this, this was an incredible temple, and it must have been something. It's really interesting today. Here's another model of what it looked like. Here's what it looked like at the top. Here's what it is today. There's one pillar left. <laughs> so there's nothing left of the temple to Artemis, but it was the defining center of the city. Jim, this goddess, I'm sorry? You never have to tell me this to jump right in. I always interrupt you. <laughs> no, you're not interrupting. You're doing what a good student does. Okay, well, what's a good student? What do you? I was reading a little bit in the book, uh, trying to get familiar with it. And uh, good. good. It looked like uh, Diana might have been one of the most popular gods. Is that what the absolutely? Gods? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And this, there's. I, I'm going to show you this again because this is going to come up as we get into the book. So this won't be the first time you're going to see it. But she was a fertility goddess, and if you look at this statue of her that's been uncovered, it's in a museum there in Turkey, but uh, you can see multiple breasts. It, it, it's, it's gross. I mean, it's, that's not an attractive idol, <laughs> but that illustrated who she was. She was the great fertility goddess. There was a tremendous amount of immorality that was associated with her, but the, and this is in the book of Acts. The, the people of Ephesus were proud that their city was dedicated to Artemis. They were proud of that. And that's why when Paul is leading more and more people to Christ, they're turning their back on Artemis. And so the merchants and those who are involved in selling, all, making and selling all of these idols turn on Paul. 
and bring him to the magistrate and accuse him of sedition and so on. But yeah, she, you're right, Woody. She was the vital center of the city. Here is a close-up photograph of that incredible, incredible theater at Ephesus. As I mentioned, it was one of the largest in the uh, Greco-Roman world. Here is a, a more panoramic shot of it. I mean, it, it's 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 incredible. I've been to a lot of these ruins throughout the throughout the uh, uh, parts of Europe and the Middle East. This is the most stunning of them all. It's so huge. And this is uh, uh, what was this theater used for at the time? What type of um, entertainment or? Well, in the Greco-Roman world, the theater. The theater was the most important source of entertainment. Uh, Greek plays, you know, um, Aeschylus, Sophocles, uh, Aristophanes, a lot of the very famous writers of the Greek world, their plays were showed over and over again. And the, the plays were mo like modern entertainment. You watch a television program or you watch a drama or you watch a comedy. That's what they did. And you can see, if you look at this, uh, this photograph, you can see at the bottom, which is where the actual, these things by acoustically are incredible. I, I've stood in these and you can stand down there and recite John 3.16 and a person on the very upper top of this can hear you. I mean, the acoustics are marvelous. But you can see in the back, there, there's like a stage area and that's where they would change uh, and put on their costumes and so on. But this was the form of entertainment. Every major Greco-Roman city had a theater. There Does are no exceptions. Stand the, stand the way that the photo shows because you That's can correct. see this people is, this on the right-hand side. Uh, so they must have tours to show that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's you and I get on a plane, uh, Woody, and I'll take you to Ephesus. Man, that sounds really good to me. Yeah, <laughs> but no, you can't. I mean, this is a, it's, it's, it is an amazing thing. In several places in, in Israel, I would take people to these, like Beit Shan and others, where the theater's still there. You can see it. But I mean, I, I'm just, I don't want to dwell on this, but I want you to see, Ephesus is no insignificant city. It's one of the most important cities in the Greco-Roman world, and Paul's targeting this for the gospel. There's just an aerial shot of it. All right, I'm not going to talk about this. That is maybe a little too boring. You have a copy of this in your notes as well. This is Swindoll's synthetic chart, and uh, I always like to use these. Um, and his stuff's in the public domain, so now I take it. And you have a copy of it, but he breaks it into those three parts. Part one, chapters one through three, our position in Christ. Chapters four through six, our practice on earth. Position, practice. Doctrine, living. And it's just, it's so easy to give the structure of Ephesians to outline it, understand what he's doing. It's one of the easiest books to outline of all that Paul's written. And you will see that as we dig into it. But you have a copy of this. And you'll see this. We're going to talk about this a little bit later. So let's get started. This is what we're going to do, okay? Um, this is, I have the entire book on, on, um, on PowerPoint, and what I've done is I've outlined, not outlined, I've highlighted in red. What I put in red and underline is, is the text itself, and then when you see blue, I'm either giving you the Greek word or I'm going to explain something about, um, about the term itself. So as we look at Ephesians, Let's begin, and I read from the ESV translation. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk a little bit about this prologue, this salutation, this greeting, which is pretty normal and typical uh, for Paul. He identifies himself as an apostle. It's a self-identifying marker. His critics and the people who did not like what Paul was saying always challenged his apostleship. So I want to ask you a question. You don't necessarily have to answer it, but just think about it. What was the primary qualification for an apostle in the early years of the church? Having seen the risen Christ. That's correct. That's right, Fred. Having seen the resurrected Jesus. And in the book of Acts chapter 1, when you remember that Judas had committed suicide, and they made the decision to replace Judas, and they set up the qualifications, the criteria, and this was the primary criteria. So, if that is the primary criterion to have seen the resurrected Jesus, does Paul meet that criterion? Yes, on the road. Good. That's right, Woody. He, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. So, he meets that qualification. So, that is always important to, to remember and to keep straight. Paul meets the central criterion for apostleship. And he's definitively identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, the term apostle is apostolon. We're just bringing it from the Greek language, letter for letter, into English. It's transliterating. And what it really means is a sent out one with authority. That's really what it means. So here's Paul. He met the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road and so on. Is he commissioned by Jesus? Yes. Jesus commissioned him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Does he have the authority of Jesus? Yes. He says that over and over again. So I'm stressing this because I really want you to think deeply about what an apostle was in the early church. It was one who met and saw the resurrected Jesus Christ and who was commissioned by the resurrected Jesus Christ with the authority of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And Paul meets all of that. So this is no small part of his introduction. He is a sent out one by Jesus with his authority. Excuse me, Jim. Is it kind of like Paul, this was, Paul didn't meet him until after the resurrection. Uh, Right. A couple years, probably. I mean, after Jesus had gone and the other apostles had seen him, right? That's correct. That's correct. Okay. That's right. And that's why, because of that time gap, uh, people that were critical of Paul say, you don't meet the qualification. But, of course, he did, because he met Jesus. Albeit, uh, you're right, uh, Paul's conversion is about A.D. 35, early A.D. 36, two and a half to three years after Jesus went back to the Father. I want you to notice something else about Paul, how he identifies himself. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. What does he mean by that? Did Paul choose to be an apostle of Jesus? No, 
you know, I mean, you know the story in Acts 9. <laughs> he was headed to Damascus to, with arrest warrants from the chief priest, to arrest a whole bunch of Christians, decimate the church, and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. Well, Jesus interrupted that. So and this is what Paul always says over and over again. I didn't choose this, but God chose me. So I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This is God's purpose for my life. And I love that. I mean, I really love to, to, to think of it that way, because I think that applies to every single one of us. You and I are, are you and I aren't Paul's the great apostle Paul, the first century. But you and I have a will and purpose, and God has rescued us from sin, justified us, and declared us righteous for a purpose. We are to represent him. Whatever that means in the context of your life, whatever you do, and whatever you touch base with, and so on, we are to represent him. It's his will for our lives. And I, I just love that Paul so clearly understood what God wanted him to do. But he would, in immense humility, would always say, I do what I do by the will of God. I didn't choose this. This wasn't what I had prepared for. And yet, at the same time, that passion and zeal that he had to persecute the church after he met Jesus, that passion and zeal was now channeled to win people to the Savior, to his Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And that, as you know, because you know his life, we've studied several of his epistles. Uh, he was one of the most tremendous examples of that. And so he addresses the letter to the saints who are in Ephesus, are faithful in Christ Jesus. I, I like that too, because he's paying them a compliment. He's saying something to, about them. He's saying, first of all, they're saints. Every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is a saint. Paul makes that very clear in the book of 1 Corinthians. There's nothing special. There's no unique set of super spiritual humans that are called saints. Everyone's a saint if you put your faith in Christ. And then he pays them another compliment. To the saints is an identity. Our faithful is a compliment. Despite all your challenges, you're faithful to the Lord Jesus. And then he gives his typical greeting. And this, I've said this before, but I'm going to repeat it. Paul's greetings, we have thousands of letters coming out of the Greco-Roman world, and this is a letter. If you're writing in Greek, you would always begin your letter with caress to, to Joe, caress to Fred, caress to, to Ross, caress to Woody, or whatever. And it was just a greeting, and the Greek word for that is caress. If you were a Jew writing, you would say shalom. I have many friends in Israel, and when they write me or email me or text me, that's always what they say, shalom, Jim. That's the typical greeting. What Paul is doing is combining the two. And I think I'm correct on this, that of all the extant letters we have, thousands of them from the Greco-Roman world of this period, none combine the two greetings like Paul does. If you're Greek, you use charis. If you're Jew, you use shalom. Paul's combining them. And that tells you, again, how Paul looks at this. He's the apostle of Jesus Christ to represent him to the Gentiles, but also to the Jews. Because we studied Acts. Every time he went to city, the first place he went to is a synagogue. But I like this, too, because there's a theological meaning to this combination. 
God always deals with us in grace. And the result of his saving grace is peace with God. That's his theme in Romans 5. So I love this. It seems to me that Paul put a lot of thought into how he was going to open his letters. We have 13 of them, as you know, in the New Testament. But his letters always start with this, combining the two primary greetings of the ancient world, but also combining them because of the inclusiveness and unity of the church, but also to make a theological statement. God always deals with us in grace, and the result of his savings grace, saving grace is his peace, is that shalom. The Greek word is irene. We are at peace with God. We're at rest with God. All things have been settled. And it's a, it's a marvelous inter, doctrinal introduction to the theme of the gospel. One final thing before we're done with the prologue. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I underlined the coordinating conjunction and because grammatically it enables us to say the Father and Son are equal. Because that coordinating conjunction is coordinating these two persons together, the Father and the Son, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice God our Father. God our Father. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you become a child of God, your relationship with God changes. He is no longer your judge. He's your heavenly Father. He judged Jesus. You've accepted that by faith. You are now in the family of God, and we have the right, we have the privilege to address God as our Father. Our Father, you know, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. And it is, it is an extraordinary privilege. It's, 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 it's minimized too much. This is an immense privilege we have to address God as Father. Indeed, in, the, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says we have the right to address God as Abba, which is an intimate term, almost like Daddy. And Jesus, who's in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14, addresses God as Abba, Abba. And so as Jesus could call his father Abba, we can call God Abba. That is a remarkable evidence of the enormously powerful intimacy we can enjoy with God. We have the right to call him Daddy, Abba. And so Paul's organizing all of these profound, profound truths into a greeting. And so often we read over that quickly and get into something else. I didn't want to do that. So I hope that was all right. Even if it isn't was all right, I decided to do it. All right. Anything about the prologue you want to ask? The first two verses. Dr. Ekman? Yes, sir. Um, if apostle is one sent out with authority, then Paul was initially an apostle for the chief priest, wasn't That's he? Correct. Called that. And That's now correct. he's an apostle for Jesus Christ. That is correct. Yeah. And you will see that word used, not in the Bible, but in other, other literature all over the Greek world. Uh, apostolon is used of someone sent out with authority by a king, by a prince, by a military officer, that's right. But it now is adopted as a key reference to a, a, a very important leader in the early church. Yeah, that's good. That's a good point. All right. Now, 
there is a lot <laughs> on this slide, but we're gonna we're gonna work our way through this. We're just going to get started today. And in your notes, um, you that you have the, the outline that I, I, I've given you, you, you can break this down into respective parts. The reason verses three through 14 are so important and why we're gonna spend a great deal of time on this is that it is an indication of the focus on the Trinity. And let's put it another way. Verses one, uh, chapter one, verses three through 14 is a praise hymn to God. And it's a praise hymn to God and the three persons that make up the God that we worship. And you will notice that verses, at the end of ver the beginning of verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace. The end of verse 12, the praise of his glory. The end of verse 14, the praise of his glory. Each one of those praise statements ends a discussion of a person of the Trinity. At the beginning of verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, ends the discussion of the Heavenly Father. The praise of his glory at the end of verse 12 ends the discussion of the beloved Son, Jesus. The end of verse 14, the praise of his glory, ends the discussion of God the Holy Spirit. So this gives you then a little bit of an anchor in how to divide up this paragraph that it is a praise hymn to God. It is a praise hymn to the three persons that make up the Godhead. It is a praise hymn to the Father, to the Son, and to the Spirit. And this may or may not be important to you, but men, this is one sentence. When you were studying grammar in elementary school or middle school, do you remember your teacher, don't write run-on sentences? Do you ever remember your teacher saying that? This is a run-on sentence. It like it's never going to end. I mean, it is an impossible. When I was in graduate school, I had a diagram, quite a few books that we studied. I had to diagram these things in Greek. To diagram this, I couldn't do it. I couldn't diagram this, this paragraph. It's insane. Because, you know, when you diagram, you got to find out what's the primary subject, what's the primary verb, and then all the other things that I could. This was a crazy thing. So Paul violates all rules of grammar, but it's a fantastic summary of God as Trinity. The second thing I want you to observe about this is the important doctrinal terms that you see in this epistle. In, for example, in verse uh, 3 and 4, chose. In verse 5, predestined. Again, in verse 11, predestined. In, in, uh, um, in verse 13, sealed. Each one of these words is a doctrinal word, a theological word. And so this, this important um, use of these doctrinal terms leads us to some controversy, because as you know, there's a lot of controversy about predestination. But you can say, I've heard people say, well, I don't believe in predestination. You can't say that. It's a biblical term, and it's used by Paul. So what I would like to do um, 
is, oh my goodness, it's almost a quarter of. What I would like to do is read just the beginning of this wonderful praise hymn to God, and then set you up for what I want to do next week when we gather. So verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, or in the heavenly places. So you can translate that Greek word blessed with the verb praise. So blessed be God, praise be God and Father. Each one of those are interchangeable words when you bring that into English. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why are we praising God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ? Because he's blessed us, and you ought to underline that little phrase, in Christ. That little phrase, in Christ, is used 242 times in the New Testament. The little phrase, in Christ, defines the sphere of all spiritual blessings. And that's what Paul's doing. We're praising the Father because he's blessed us in Christ, that sphere of blessing, with every conceivable, imaginable spiritual blessings in heaven. Literally in the Greek, in the heavenly places. In the heavenlies. And so it's like, I love this, because it's a magnificent summary. Okay, try to itemize all the blessings of God in Christ. You can't. The list just goes on and on and on. So what Paul does, instead of listening, he just says, we praise the Father because in his Son, Jesus, we enter into that sphere of blessing by putting faith in him. We enjoy every conceivable spiritual blessing that is in the heavenlies. Every conceivable, imaginable blessing from God is secured in Christ. And it's the gift of the Heavenly Father. So it's a fantastic introduction to one of the greatest praises of Him, H-I-M, in the Bible. But it's a praise Him to God. But He introduced us to the Father. And so next week, what I want to do as we move into the text is verse 4. What Paul does is he itemizes, okay, a blessing from the Father. What's the blessing from the Father? He chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption. The next week, we're going to spend about 30 minutes just on verse 4, because it is loaded with blessing, loaded with truth, loaded with the amazing grace of God, that even before the foundation of the world, he knew each one of you, he loved each one of you, he predetermined the destiny of each one of you, that is how important you are to God. Now, each one of those raises questions, but for now, as, you, as we're about to leave uh, today, all I want you to do is just focus on the incredible blessing that I'm that important to the Heavenly Father. That before the, heaven, before the foundation of the world, He knew about me, He loved me, 
He predetermined my destiny. Wow. Is it any wonder Paul calls on us to praise God for all these spiritual blessings? So you can get a little sense, I hope, of why I love to study the book of Ephesians. It's, it's one of the richest books in, in all of Paul's 13 letters. And it's so eminently practical. All right, got it? Are we at a fairly reasonable level of excitement about studying the Word of God, or is this still kind of boring to you? Yes, we are. Do we do we get a copy of this, uh, what I'm seeing on my screen? Um, I usually do not make available copies of all of my PowerPoint slides. Some of it is copyrighted. Um, feel free to take copious notes. Not a problem. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to pray here because it's getting a little bit late and I've got to get to another class. All right. Let me pray with you. Thank you, Father, for a little concluding comments about the wonderful Psalm 13 of David. It's one of the most, it's short, it's succinct, but it's one of the most refreshing aspects of our walk with you. Here's David who was in a very difficult situation and compounding the difficulty was your seeming silence. But he just goes full circle and he comes back to you. He he reminds that he reminds himself that you're a covenant-making, keeping, covenant-keeping God, a God of Chesed. And your your loyal love means you're never going to abandon him. And that profound, deep trust and confidence in God that David manifested. That's for each one of us. No matter how difficult our situations can be, it's unimaginable. It can even there's seeming silence. We know you, God. We know who you are. We put our faith and trust in you. You're not going to leave us. You're not going to abandon us. You're not going to forsake us. Help us to hold on to that very important truth. And thank you for our beginning of our study in the book of Ephesians. It's a rich, rich book filled with tremendous insights and teachings. We're going to take our time and slowly go through this, and I pray it will be a blessing to the men as we study it together. Uh, help each one of them in each aspect of their life. You know their needs. You know the particular areas they may be struggling with. You know them even better than they know themselves. So, Lord, meet each one of those according to your perfect will. Bless them. Use them. May they be strong, strong men of faith who represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week, guys. Thank you, Jim. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Jim. You're welcome, everybody.